Hello and welcome to episode five of the Only Foals and Racehorses podcast from Adventures in Black and White. In this episode, I'm going to go through how I came about working for Dali and um, how much fun that was at the start and why I did it. At this point, I was moving into my second year of my degree and starting to try and think about what I might be doing when I finished. Part of my degree had this year out in industry that we did in our third year, which was really useful because it was designed to give you obviously some industry experience and help you decide on what path you want to go on. I was particularly lucky that at that point we had a very, very good lecturer called Cathy Lawson, who now works for, well, she's an independent nutritionist now, but she she did move on and work for Spillers. She knew that I had a very keen interest in the thoroughbreds and we discussed at length what I might want to do. I had realised by this stage that probably working in racing full time wasn't going to be for me because I wanted to have my horses and compete and the working week of a, a racing lad is just not really conducive for competing. At that point, obviously, I was part-time, which was perfect, but I couldn't be part-time forever. So we went back to the fact that I was interested in training horses and also in rehab and injury prevention. And she suggested that I contacted uh, Kildang and Stud because they had um, a massive operation for pre-training of yearlings and also they were known widely for their rehab. Kildang and Stud is part of the Dali Empire, which is owned by Sheikh Mohammed. It was uh, bought by him, I believe, in 1982, which I should know because I work there now. It is huge. It's in Ireland, um, in Kildare, which is the home place of the thoroughbred in, in Ireland. She suggested that I contacted them. So I looked them up in Direction of the Turf because while the internet was operational at that time um direction of the turf was like our bible for where to go to find out who to contact so i sent them an email to jimmy highland who's still there today and outlined what i wanted to do and asked him if he had any positions for me I was really, really lucky. Um, they're quite keen on employing students and um, very proactive and encouraging people. So they came back to me and said that they had a position that involved breaking, helping with the breaking of the yearlings and then any other stud work that might be going on. And uh, I could start there in the September, which is when they'd be starting to break the early yearlings. And I could stay as long as I wanted. And at that point, I knew that I'd probably stay till Christmas because after Christmas, all the yearlings would be going as training and then they'd be focusing on the stud season. Stud season was something at that point that I was really, really not at all keen to get involved with. So I did have to think about what I was going to do after that. And then we stumbled on our plan, which was a little bit mad, but I was only 20 at the time. And I decided that I wanted to do a year of yearlings. So securing the Kildanger job was fairly easy. And then I had to think, well, where else can I do yearlings for the rest of the year? And that would mean going Southern Hemisphere. So I decided that I was going to go to Australia. And this is why I think that working with racehorses is such an amazing thing to do, particularly when you're young, because 
I can't think of many other careers where you can have a decent, well-paying job right from the start and you can travel the world. Um, I could have gone even further. I have friends of mine that did the whole lot. They did America, they did Europe, they did um, Japan and they did Australia or New Zealand. So I was keeping the Australia thing in the on the back burner while I sorted out Kildangan and then I'll move on to that later. Once I got accepted at Kildangan, I just made my way through the year working really, really hard. I was still working at Hewitt's. So at that point, I was doing three mornings a week for, I think he paid me, he was paying me £20 a morning. So I come out about £60 a week. Sometimes I do a bit more. And then if he wanted me to go racing, I had a racing badge by this stage, so I'd go racing as well. And it was really, really handy because if I was going into uni in the afternoon or even if I had a nine o'clock lecture, I could still ride out two lots and I'd still get paid the same as if I'd stayed there all morning. So I really, really was enjoying that at the time. And um, it was just good to be getting on and learning. And we've gone through how they do their yearlings. And it was all good stuff to help towards what was going to happen when I went to Kildangan. I'll come back to the rest of Huey at another point, because I think after two episodes, you kind of don't want to hear too much more about that right now. And um, there is plenty more from there, but we'll come back to that. So when I left to go to Kildangan from Huey's, we had a big party the night before and I kind of didn't really think through what I was doing. And I remember leaving, well, we had this big party and I planned when I was going to go and I planned how long it was going to take me to get to the ferry. But for some reason, I hadn't factored in the fact that you had to get to the ferry about an hour before. I suppose I'd never had to be responsible for these things. I was driving myself. So I took my car, so I loaded up all my possessions, some of which I'd taken home to mum, but I basically had pretty much my university life in my car, my little Peugeot 106 called Pierre, and we set off for the port of Holyhead with a hangover. And I, as I got closer, I it, we, we hit traffic and I sat and I was looking at my ticket and then I realised that I've made a big boo-boo and it was basically an hour behind time. And I have to say, that trip across the top of Wales, I don't even know how I got there. <laughs> I literally got there as the last cars were loading. And then I got on the ferry and then because I was cheap and as we know before, I wasn't going to pay the euros to get the cabin. So I sat and because it was during the daytime and there's full of holiday makers because we were talking September, I think it was just before the kids went back to school. I sat in the um, eating area feeling very hungover and absolutely exhausted, surrounded by screaming kids. And as usual, I wondered what I was doing. But I was really excited for what came next. I had no idea. I'd had a look at the at their webpage and it all looked very impressive. And I was just really excited to be working with some really high class horses. We got to Dublin and I promptly got lost in round Dublin port. It's meant to be fairly simple to get onto the motorway because there is a motorway that pretty much takes you straight to Kildare. And yeah, I got lost, but I managed to get back on track and I drove again I just drove I didn't think about oh maybe I should stop at a shop you know to get some food 
I got my little fistful of euros and I just headed straight to Kildangan. They were expecting me when I got there, which is always a plus because that's happened to me before when people haven't expected us. And the first sight of Kildangan when you come through the public entrance is impressive. Like they had these huge gates and proper security. And so I said who I was and they let me through and they were like, oh, yeah, follow us. Um, Because they tried to explain where to go. And I just obviously looked like a deer in the headlights. Like, what the hell? What are you saying? Can't really understand you. So they said they'd take me up so I could see where I got to go. And I followed them. And it was literally like going into Narnia. It was just like a whole other world. I've never seen grass so immaculately kept. There was like fountains and ponds and massive flower beds. The fencing was all just amazing. The buildings just looked really impressive. I um, was taken to Main Yard, which was where I was going to be living. So when I got to Main Yard, um, I was introduced to Scanner, who I think is still there. And he is one of the older lads and he was basically in charge just helping me settle in so he said oh you're going to be living here on main yard and main yard was like it was that was really impressive that was a proper centerpiece it was a like a square yard with a massive archway and a clock and in the middle was like a pond with a fountain um the fountain would become a bit of an issue but I'll come on to that in a bit and so he took us up and so uh, Long Flat consisted of uh, four rooms, uh, two bathrooms, a massive kitchen, like a, and then a laundry room. And then there was a TV room at the end. And initial thoughts were it was a bit rough, but it looked OK. I was introduced to a couple of other people that were there. They said that they were filling it up with newbies and that um, there'd be more people arriving and that was all okay. And so I I unpacked my car and um, I went to the bedroom that I was shown and I didn't really twig at first that there was there was two beds in the room and the room was quite a decent size and I thought oh this is great and by that stage I had a boyfriend so I thought oh that's cool we can push those two beds together when he comes over to see me well little did I know that for the first time in my 20 years I was actually gonna have to share a room with a complete stranger and not just for a night like when you went racing no this was gonna be for as long as I was there I have never known anywhere that would you know think that that was acceptable and I think about it now and it was mad because you know fair enough you know you could put 15 16 year olds in together and you know to help each other but you know we were all in our 20s and I just anyway it was very backward but I just I sucked it up at the time and, and just hoped that whoever turned up was going to be nice the other thing about having four bedrooms, eight girls, two bathrooms and a kitchen is that it just got very, very messy and very, very quickly. And a couple of the girls were particularly bad. The flypaper in the kitchen, again, an abomination that um, anyone who's worked with horses will know is kind of like a necessary evil, but it's still disgusting. Because if you live anywhere near horses or any livestock, for that fact, you will have a house full of flies in the summer or pretty much all year round. 
I found. So yeah, there was this fly paper, but I'm sure the fly problem wasn't actually improved by the fact that the kitchen sink was constantly full of really, really mucky plates. But hey-ho, that's the joys of living with other people. So I think I was there, I think I arrived on the Saturday. I was sort of left my own devices. Uh, we were starting on Monday. So I, th I probably just went and got food on the Sunday. And then on the Sunday afternoon, this other person rocks up, introduces themselves as Lynn. And she was going to be my roommate. I'm sure she was just as mortified as I was that she was coming to share. And um, I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but um, her first few days there were were obviously pretty traumatic from like she just left a yard and I, she really loved that job and she missed it so much and she was just very upset every night and that's all I could remember was just you know it's traumatic enough having to share a room when I haven't ever had to share one like that before but to be sharing it with a stranger who was really upset every night was a bit like we just don't know what to do but as it turned out me and Lynn became the best of friends and we're still friends today and in fact it was with Lynn that I went to Australia so we've been all around the world together it's funny how you put in these situations and you find really good friends Lynn is Swedish um, but she's lived in Ireland for a long time I think she came over when she was 16 17 I'm sure she'll correct me on this she worked for um the Mangans and was there when they trained the Grand National winner Montes Pass so she'd had a really great time um, with them and she was at Kildangan and we were newbies together so she was a nice person and and it was I was glad in a way that she was my roommate compared to some of the others and yeah it was all good another girl that I met there who is still a good friend and actual work colleague to this day is Cheryl Cheryl came a bit later because um, she was doing the BHA graduate course and as her work placement, she wanted to work for Dali. So they placed her in Ireland and she had her own sad little sorry tale as well. She rocked up in her black Ford Escort. I'm sure it was a Ford Escort. And she had a sorry tale and we were all there just getting along and growing and, and it was lovely because the fact that we're all still such good friends all these years later I've been to Cheryl's wedding and I've been back to Ireland many times to see Lynn and Lynn's come over here and we've all met up and yeah it's just it it was just lovely that through horses and a shared career we've all sort of got together there were other people in the flat I can't remember all of them right now there was a couple of strange ones there was one girl who had to sleep with music on so her roommate wasn't particularly pleased with her because obviously that meant she didn't get much sleep each night because she didn't want music on and um, one of the enduring memories of long flat was at that time a lot of us were smokers poor Lynn wasn't and at night when we were watching tv and we'd be sat in our little living room like I was aware that it was full of smoke but from a non-smoker's point of view, it must have just been horrific because you literally couldn't see the TV for the smoke. And it was just everywhere. Like, we just, yeah, everyone just smoked all the time. <laughs> yeah, but obviously those things don't happen now <laughs> because you're not allowed to do things like that in houses. And I don't think they make people share bedrooms anymore there, but uh, 
I think I was probably one of the last of a generation to have to suffer that fate. So we all trudged down on the Monday morning to um, the little kitchen that was on the main yard and in there, everyone everyone from the site met up there in the morning and you'd have, uh, there was a rotor on the wall for which yards you were going to be working on. There was a number of different yards with different sorts of horses on those yards. So the um, many yards they had there, you'd start off first with Barn 52, which had a variety of horses in. I think during the season, it's probably where they kept the mares that were staying overnight to come and see the stallions. But when I was there, we had yearlings in. You had isolation, which again, the name speaks for itself. Then obviously the stallion unit. Next up was Whitefield, which was an amazing yard. It was purpose built for foaling and it was built on a, um, I think it's a hexagon. And you have the people sat in the middle watching the mares at night and the stables are all off that one um, central console building so it was really good because you don't have people walking around and it just looks so cool then you had Brookfield and Toba Tig, which is where a lot of the yearlings were Brookfield was a, uh, a horseshoe shaped yard and it was designed so that when Sheikh Mohammed was coming in in his helicopter it looked like a horseshoe and then uh, there was Bourne, which was where you had a lot of the mares and foals. And then there was another yard, Harristown, which again was exactly the same yard, but in a different uh, location. And then at that point, we had what they called Over the Road, which was two new barns that they put up. So, yeah, a, a wide range of different yards. And it was literally like a maze. So you were allocated a yard for that week and you might stay there one week, two weeks, three weeks. I think Cheryl spent her entire time on her yard. Me and, and Lynn, we moved around a bit more, but they obviously placed you where they thought you, you worked best. That was nice. And what was good was, unlike working in racing, you had your, I can't remember what the work hours were. I think it was 7.30 till 4.30. And then you had like half an hour for breakfast, an hour for lunch, and then you worked every other weekend. Um, so no Saturday mornings on your weekends off, um, which was really nice. And it just seemed to be a really good way of doing things. And uh, yeah, so I was introduced to my new team. And then off we went to meet our first yard and horses. I hope you enjoyed hearing all about um, how I actually got the job at Kildangan and, and, and what the process was with that, because I think it's easy to get stuck in thinking that you, you know, you work in racing, you just want to ride racehorses, but there's so many other little jobs that you can do. And the best way to do it is just to ask people. If anyone wants to ask me for tips and hints and where I recommend and where I've heard good, then, you know, always feel free to contact me and I'll I'll get back to you. Please come back for the next episode where I tell you about our exciting horses because I was very lucky and that while I was at Kildangan, I broke in or helped break in the one and only crop of Dubai Millennium and there were some real superstars in that crop. So don't forget to come back next week. Like and subscribe and just tell all your friends. Like I really enjoy doing this podcast. See you next week. <laughs>